So we're continuing a series called Circle Maker. <laughs> this week's, the, the title, I love this title. It's, it's from Mark Batterson, and this is his title. I would love to claim it. Um, so I'm going to right now, I guess. Uh, but <laughs> the title of this sermon is Dream Big, Cloudy with a Chance of Quail. Um, and that will make a lot more sense here in a little bit. But uh, I want to <laughs> kind of step back. And look at last week uh, and where, what some of the things we were talking about last week with Honey. You see, stepping out in faith, stepping out in faith like we're talking about doing in this series can sometimes feel a bit foolish. Think about it. With Honey last week, before that first raindrop fell, he had to feel at least a little bit foolish standing inside a circle demanding that it's going to rain. That's a risky proposition, right? So he's standing in this circle. He's vowing, I'm not, and, and more than that, I'm not going to leave this circle until that rain happens, which is even riskier. And he didn't draw like a semicircle. You know, last week I drew that full circle. He, and he didn't leave like, okay, I'm going to draw almost a circle so that just in case I can escape. He didn't do that. He drew a full circle and said, I'm staying here until it rains. There was no escape clause. There, and he didn't put an expiration date. I'm going to stay until Tuesday. He didn't say that. He said, I'm going to stay in this circle until it rains. The only way out for Honey was a miracle. The only way out was a miracle. And drawing prayer circles often looks like an exercise in foolishness. But sometimes that's what faith can look like. See, faith is, having faith is at least being willing to look foolish for God. Being willing to step out. Think about some of these guys, some of these heroes of the Bible. Noah, you remember Noah, right? He's building an ark for some animals that don't live close by. Oh, and by the way, he's building an ark in the desert, talking about rain falling from the sky, talking about this water that's going to come down from the sky. It hadn't ever rained yet. That's just a little bit foolish. The Israelite army, we talked about this last week, you know, marching around Jericho, right? We're going to circle, what'd they do the first day? They circled it, blowing trumpets, and then what'd they do? They went into camp. And then what'd they do day two? They circled the walls again, big 50-foot walls of Jericho, and they circle it. And then, of course, at that point, they attacked, right? No, they went to camp. So day three, day four, day five, day six, they go around. This is a great, I love this battle plan. It's awesome. You know, it's a beautiful battle plan to win. No, it's not, but it's a God's plan. What happened on day seven, though? They went around. <laughs> no, I'm not going to go around six times. <laughs> they went around, and then they, the, the, the great plan was, we're going to yell at the wall. Fall down! And you know what happened? The wall fell down. 50-foot walls. They go in the city. They take it over. But they looked Foolish, a shepherd boy named David standing in front of a Goliath, right, a giant, standing there with a slingshot of all things, had to look foolish. The wise men tracking a star from Persia or Iraq or wherever they were coming from, they didn't know where they were going. They were following a star. They didn't know. They looked foolish. Peter, when he stepped out of the boat, hey, let me step out of the boat onto the water. That didn't look good. 
You know, that had never turned out well for anyone so far, you know, and the, and the phrase, you know, <laughs> walk on water didn't exist yet, so it wasn't like, hey, well, I'm going to walk on water like somebody else did. No, you're not, because it's never happened, so it's just you, and you're going to sink, and that's going to happen. He looked foolish stepping out of the boat, and Jesus seemed at least a little unwise for coming down from heaven to wear a crown of thorns, but the results, right? The results speak for themselves. Noah was saved from the flood. The walls come tumbling down. David defeats Goliath. The wise men discover the Messiah. Peter walked on water, and Jesus was crowned the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The results speak for themselves. Foolishness is also a feeling that Moses had to be familiar with. Remember some of his stuff. He had to feel foolish going before Pharaoh. He goes before Pharaoh saying, let my people go. And I'm sure Pharaoh looked at him and said, why? Um, God told me. Okay, yeah, okay, that, that works for me. No. So Mo, but Moses said, how about standing in front of the Red Sea? And he raises his staff up. Like that, what's that going to do? Had to look a little bit foolish. And certainly, promising meat to eat for the entire nation of Israel in the middle of the wilderness. But it was his willingness to look foolish that resulted in some of the most epic of miracles. The exodus out of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, and the quail miracle that we're going to look at in a little bit. See, drawing prayer circles often looks foolish. And the bigger prayer circle you draw, the more foolish you might feel, you know, as we're drawing this, you know, praying and, and, and wrapping around the promises of God. But if you aren't willing to step out of the boat, you know what? You're never even going to walk on the water ever. That can't happen. If you're not willing to circle the city, the wall will never fall. And if you aren't willing to follow the star, you're going to miss out on the greatest adventure of your life. In order to experience a miracle, you have to be willing to take a risk. You have to. And one of the most difficult types of risk is when we risk our reputation. Honey had a reputation as a rainmaker. He didn't have to step out. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to get in that circle, but he did. He was willing to risk his reputation by praying for rain one more time, and he took that risk, and the rest is history. And the greatest chapters in history always begin with somebody willing to take a risk. And the same, by the way, is true when you look at the chapters in your life and I look at the chapters in mine. We have to be willing to take a risk. Because if you're unwilling to risk your reputation, you're not going to be able to step out of the boat like Peter or you're not going to build a boat like Noah. And you cannot build God's reputation if you aren't willing to risk your own. If you're not willing to step out beyond your own means and into a place where it's up to him, you cannot do it. There comes a moment when you have to decide in your life and in your faith whether I'm going to stand still or I'm going to make a move. Am I going to stand still where I am or am I going to make the move? Circle makers are risk takers. They make the move. And Moses learned this, this lesson well. He said if you, he learned that if you don't take the risk, you can forfeit the miracle. So our passage is from the book of Numbers. And if you've read through Numbers, this is a very appropriate cartoon. So I want to put some context, though, around the verses that we're going to use. So the situation is, after 400 years of slavery, God has delivered the Israelites out of Egypt... But it's much harder getting Egypt out of the Israelites than it was even getting the Israelites out of Egypt. So despite the memory of slavery and the miracle of deliverance, the Israelites want to go back 
to Egypt. They begin to complain, oh, for some meat, we want some meat. We, we remember all the fish we ate and used to eat for free in Egypt, and we used to have cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic, but now our appetites are gone, and day after day, we have nothing to eat but this manna that fell from the sky miraculously <laughs> and tastes a little bit like cinnamon. They're complaining, right? That's kind of their nature, I know. It's shocking to hear. Uh, but instead of manna, instead of this miracle, they want meat to eat. But think about it. Selective, anybody in here suffer from selective memory? Every man better raise his hand. Uh, <laughs> the Israelites long for the free fish that they ate in Egypt, and they forget the little fact that the food was free because they weren't. And isn't it just a little ironic that they're complaining about one miracle, the manna falling from the sky, while asking for another one, feed the nation this meat. Their capacity for complaining is, 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 is astounding, really. And we like to scoff at them and point at them and, and say, what's, what's wrong with the Israelites for grumbling about the manna but that, that was miraculously delivered every day to their doorstep or to their tent step or whatever you want to call that, that. That we're showing up. But don't we do similar stuff? Think about this. There are miracles all around us all the time. But it's easy to find something to complain about in the midst of those miracles. So as you're looking at this, and hopefully you know, you're taking a look and reading it, the simple act of reading involves millions of impulses firing across billions of synapses. And by the way, while you're reading, your heart goes about its business, circulating five quarts of blood through 100,000 miles of veins, arteries, and capillaries. And it's amazing that you can even concentrate, given the fact that you're on a planet that's traveling 67,000 miles per hour through space, spinning on its axis at 1,000 miles an hour. That's what's going on right now. But we take those manna miracles, those miracles that happen day in and day out, for granted. It's the nature of us as humans, I guess. Our passage is out of 11, Numbers 11, beginning at verse 18. Remember, they were wanting meat to eat. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord's going to give you meat and you're going to eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or five days or ten days or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have welled before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Only they probably said, why did we ever leave Egypt? I didn't want to leave Egypt. I kind of wanted to stay in Egypt. Despite their complaining, God responds to their food tantrum with one of the most unfathomable promises in Scripture. He doesn't just deliver the promise of a one-course meal. God promises meat for a month. This is a group that's traveling in the wilderness, right? Remember that. Moses, by the way, doesn't really, he's having a hard time believing in himself. This is, he's saying, all right, so here I am, about 600,000 men on foot, and you say I'm going to give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if the flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? Moses can't figure it out. He's doing the math. It doesn't add up. It's not even close. He's trying to think 
of any conceivable way that God could fulfill this promise. And he can't think of a single scenario. There's no way. No way it can happen. He doesn't see how God can fulfill an Im- this impossible promise for even one day, let alone for a month. Have you ever been there? How's God going to do it? You know God wants you to take the job that pays less, but it doesn't add up. How am I going to make ends meet? You know God wants you to go on the mission trip, but it doesn't add up. I can't take time off. I can't pay for it. I can't do it. You know God wants you to get married, go to grad school, or adopt, but it doesn't add up. I'm going to tell you about a decision that I had to make. I was... um, working in treatment services in Hall County. And when we first moved to Georgia um, from Nebraska after Oregon and originally from California, um, I thought I'd confess. <laughs> when, we, when we first moved out here, I, I was working as a chemical dependency and mental health counselor. That's my background. And so I, I got pulled in, I got drawn into drug courts as a treatment philosophy because of some of, you know, I know that Research tells us that the longer a stay in treatment, the the greater the likelihood of a positive outcome. And so I was drawn because I had time to work with people. So I I became the clinical director for Hall County Drug Court. Uh, We started one of the first pilot program DUI courts in the state, and I was so they hired me to to do that. And then the drug court director took another job so that we combined the drug court and DUI court so that I could be the director of both of those. We added a family treatment court, which uh, is an accountability court for you, mostly mothers, but parents who have lost their kids due to substance abuse so that we could bring families back together. We added another drug court in Dawson County. We added a prevention tract, and we brought the mental health court into under this treatment services umbrella. And by the way, I was recruited by the National Drug Court Institute and the National Association of Drug Court Professionals to be a trainer on, on counseling and, and treatment uh, around the country for teams, and so I was getting to travel all over the place. And then later on, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration also brought me in to train um, their teams. I was loving this, you know? That's, that's fe- and I'm making money, right? So, <laughs> so, so it was cool. I was loving it. I, I'm like, hey, this is great. And then in about 2003, God went, I really want you to go and become a pastor. And I'm like, thanks, but yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I, I don't need to do that. I'm, people know I'm a Christian in a government setting. I pray with people at work. I'm doing good. I, I'm making money. We're doing good. It's all good, and you can just, you know. No, I'm really good. I, I get it, you know, and, and this continued for four years. And I have to tell you that there's this thing called holy discontent that happens when you know what God is, is calling you to do and you, you're saying no. Over the course of time, it becomes untenable. It's untenable internally. And so, you know, I argued with him throughout that time, which is really common. You'll see it in, in just about all pastors' call story. Um, but, you know, I would point out that, that I was working with a lot of people, making all this stuff that I was doing, right? And God was like, no, I, I really want you, but, but I don't want you to go be Reverend Divine, right? And I don't want you to go be something you're not. I want you to go and be Mike Divine, but be a pastor. I need people like you in the church. I want you to be authentically who you are. I don't want you to be something. And if you become something, I'm going to put people around you to slap you a little bit to remind you that I don't want you to become something. So, so I made a deal with God, which is another thing that's 
common. I, I said, okay, here's the deal. It, it, I will apply to seminary. I, I had a master's degree. I was done with school. I had told everyone in the world, I'm done with school. I don't want to go back to school. I've had enough school. And so I was good. But I said, I'll apply, but it, it but if, and, and it'd be great if I'm accepted, then, you know, so I applied to Candler, but I also need financial support. And, and so I applied. I, we, I got a half scholarship and, and stuff. And so and obviously, it <laughs> here I am. So I gave him nine months' notice, and I went, went off to seminary. But here's the thing. It didn't add up, right? If you look at it, I had people in my life who said, Mike, you're doing great. You're, you're, you don't need to do that. You're impacting lives. You, you know, literally thousands of lives every year in addiction treatment. You're in mental health treatment. You're impacting lives. You're making a difference. You're training teams. You're doing it, blah, 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 and God is still going. I get all that. But what I want for you is to go into ministry and become who I've called you to be. And so that's led me here. And this is the place that I'm supposed to be. And I'm grateful for that, but it didn't add up, right? If you look at it from, from a world, from uh, really from just about every perspective, it didn't add up. And Moses, what he found in himself when he's looking at how we're going to feed all of these people, it didn't add up. And it reminds of another f- food miracle. I know that says Luke up here, but it's actually John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And, and the circumstance of this is that there's a crowd of 5,000, and they're listening to Jesus speak, and he doesn't want to send them away hungry. But there aren't any, you know, there's no McDonald's, and there's certainly not a Bojangles, and there's not even a Cracker Barrel around to send them to. There may not even have been a Waffle House. I, I don't know. There's nowhere to send them to eat. So, so there's this nameless boy who comes up, and he offers his sack lunch, and he has five loaves and two fish. Here you go, 5,000 people at least. And here's five loaves and two fish. And it's a great gesture, but Andrew, one of the disciples, he verbalizes probably what they were all thinking is, how far will this go with so many? Because like Moses, Andrew does the math, and it doesn't add up. In terms of addition, it's five plus two equals seven. Five plus two equals seven. There's 5,000 people here. How is this ever going to work? But if you add God into the equation, then he multiplies, right? So so God makes five plus two equal seven. 5,000, but not only does he multiply the meal to feed the 5,000, you know what he does? There's 12 baskets left over. So if you do the math God's way, it's 5 plus, five plus 2 equals 5,000 with the remainder of 12 baskets, which is way more than you started with in the first place. This is God's economy. This is who God is. This is how he, he this is math according to God, because it doesn't add up by us, but, but God multiplies. He's a God who multiplies. So let's get to the quail. Now, a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. Now, remember, they're in the desert, and we don't know exactly how far the sea is, but this must have been a heck of a wind, I'm just saying. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. So this wind blows these quail. Some, you, we got some quail hunters, right? So the wind blows the quail in from the sea to the Israelites. 
And based on the Hebrew system of measurement, a day's walk is approximately 15 miles in any direction. So if you square the radius and multiply by pi, as you want to do if you want to find out some square miles, you will find that that is almost 700 square miles. That's big. Comparison, Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, 68.3 square miles. And not only is that an area 10 times larger than Washington, D.C., the quail were piled three feet deep. Three feet deep. Those are birds behind this, by the way. Can you imagine seeing all those birds flying into the camp? It had to be like a bird blizzard. Quail Mageddon, right? Quail Mageddon, here it comes. All these birds are coming into. You like it, Judy. You know that. <laughs> all these birds are coming into the camp. And, and so they start, they, after they stop falling, the Israelites start gathering. And each, each gathered no less than 10 homers. And a homer. A homer is equated to about 200 liters, and assuming that the quail were average size, it ranged somewhere in the neighborhood of 105 million quail. 105 million quail. God provided in abundance for the Israelites. So is there a promise you need to circle in your life? Maybe you need to circle a promise for your marriage, or maybe you need to circle a promise for your kids. Maybe you need to circle a promise for this stage of life. Maybe it's a promise for a fear you're facing or a dream you're pursuing. Because before the quail storm appeared on the Doppler radar, God asked Moses a question. And it's actually more than a question. It's kind of the question. Your answer to this question will determine the size of your prayer circles. What are you willing to to pray for because the Lord answered Moses and said this is the Lord's arm too short is the Lord's arm too short now you're going to see whether or not what I say will come true for you another way to put that is there any limit to my power is there any limit to God's power and the obvious answer to this is what we would normally say is no there's no limit to God's power because God is omnipotent which means by definition there's nothing God cannot do. So, for example, when they come up to you, someone who is an atheist or has the, this, this is one of the famous, okay, well, if God's omnipotent, then can he make a rock too big for himself to, to lift? And the answer to that is, yes. And they say, how? And I say, I don't know how. I just know that God can do anything so he can make a rock too big for himself to lift because he's outside of the things that we understand. He's bigger than, than all of that. He's bigger. And hear this. There's nothing that God cannot do. But many of us pray prayers as if our problems are bigger than our God. God is infinitely bigger than your biggest problem. By the way, God is infinitely bigger than your biggest dream. And while we're on the topic, please, those of you who struggle like I do, God's grace is infinitely bigger than your biggest sin. God's grace is big. A.W. Tozer believed that a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils, but a high view of God is the solution to 10,000 temporal problems. A low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils, but a high view of God is the solution to 10,000 temporal problems. And I believe it's true. And if it's true, then our biggest problem is not an impending divorce or a failing business or a doctor's diagnosis. 
But please, and, and, and look, I, I'm not minimizing those things. Those are real. Those are big deals. Not making light of relational, financial, health, emotional issues. They're real. And I don't want to minimize any of that. But in order to grab hold of a godly perspective on our problems, then we have to answer this question. Are our problems bigger than our God, or is our God bigger than our problems? And that's a question that we have to grapple with, because our biggest problem is our small view of God. It's the cause of a, well, really all lesser evils. A high view of God is the solution to those problems. Is there any limit to my power? Have you answered this question? There's really only two answers. It's either... Yes, there's a limit to your power, God. Or no, there's not a limit to your power, God. And this will determine our prayer life, the answer to this question. If we believe that God's grace and power know no limits, we will pray ever enlarging circles. But if we don't, then we're going to pray small circles. How big is your God? Is he big enough to heal a marriage or a child? Is he bigger than a positive MRI or a negative evaluation or our secret sin or our secret dream? And I know that all of our prayers don't turn out the way that we want, but I believe that God is in the midst of all of them. Moses was confused by the promise God had given him. How could God possibly provide meat for a month? It didn't add up. But at that juncture, when Moses had to decide whether or not to circle the problem, God posed the question, is there any limit? to my power, and his answer was, no, there's not, so I believe that you're going to manage this. Mark Batterson relates this miracle from him. He said, when God prompted me to pray for a $2 million miracle, I had to answer the question. It seemed like an impossible promise to me, but to the God who can provide 105 million quail out of nowhere, what's $2 million, right? The size of our prayers depends on the size of our God, and if God knows no limits, then neither should our prayers. God exists outside of the four space-time dimension. He created, by the way, and we should pray like he exists outside of, the, of our understanding. Reminds me of, of the man who was kind of sizing up God with a couple of questions. He said, God, how long is a million years to you? And God said, a million years is like a second. Okay. How much is a million dollars to you? And God said, a million dollars is like a penny. And the man smiled and said, could you spare a penny? And God smiled back and said, sure, just wait a second. <laughs> With God, there is no big or small, easy or difficult, possible or impossible. He, those are us. That's our parameters. That's difficult for us to comprehend because that's all we know in our life are these four dimensions we're born into. But God is not subject to the natural laws that he instituted. He has no beginning and end. He always has been. To the infinite, all finites are equal. To, to the omnipotent, the limited, he's unlimited. So, so what we see as because we're limited is nothing compared to what God can do. So even our hardest prayers are easy for the omnipotent one to answer. There's no degree of difficulty for God. And if you're like me, you tend to use bigger words for bigger requests. It's like, I really need this one, so let me pull out my vocabulary, you know. <laughs> Thou knowest, dear God. <laughs> we pull out our best vocabulary words for our biggest prayers as if it depends. If we pray right, then that's going to be the answer, right? 
But how long or how loud we pray is not the point. It comes down to our answer to that same question, right? Is there any limit to God's power? And I love this. This is from Tozer, too. It says, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity we plan to do only the things that we can do ourselves. See, when God gives a vision, he'll make provision. We just need the courage to step out in faith when God's calling to us to get out of the boat. We've got to get out of the boat. We have to believe that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can send a wind that, that brought in 105 million quail into the Israelite camp. Step out in faith in pursuing the dream that God has put in our hearts. What steps of faith do we need to take? What steps of faith do you need to take? Do I need to take? What decision do we need to make? On what promise do we need to put down a stake? What's your Jericho? What's your Jericho? And I want to share with you my Jericho. I mentioned a little bit last week about church and, and Jericho Village and the coffee house and this model that we were working on and the fundraising that we did. But let me paint a picture of, of, of something that is in my, in my brain and in my head and I would love to see and I'm praying for and I'm circling this. It's quite simply a church like us. Building a facility that, that is a coffeehouse church, uh, and even if it's not a, co a, a community center church, I don't care, a place that brings the sacred and the secular together where God can act on life. And we build this facility. And in my head, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a round style of facility. And in the front is the coffee house area. The worship center's behind it. It's, it's, it's a venue space, really, is what it is, because it, it's church, but it's going to be used seven days a week. And people from the community are going to be there with artwork on the walls from community members, with, with musicians who have a place to come in and to play. Speakers can come in and use this venue to, to speak. And on the side is grow to be you day school who happens to have outside a playground and they have classrooms and they're full time and, 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 and that's going on over here and, and, and then on this side we have our offices and our classrooms and our youth area in the back is the kitchen behind the venue space because we want to be able to serve people and serve food and by the way out back one of those offices that houses I serve uh, because they, they, they live in different places, but we want to house them. And, and, and in the back is a warehouse for ISERVE to have their food ministry located with us, and we're in partnership with them. Can you see the picture? It's costly. You know, it's a minimum of $1.5 million to $2 million project. That's my Jerry. Because we can be that, a place where people come together, a place where our community comes together. Join me in that prayer. I challenge you to join me in that prayer. I don't know how. I mean, I get it. <laughs> we may, you know, we're happy. We were $200 over budget last month, and we're like, woohoo! Mike, you're talking about $1.5 to $2 million that you don't have. I said, I don't have it, but guess what? I know somebody who does. <laughs> but think about the impact on this community to create a space that people can come to 
and that we can be with and they can be with us and they can help us to understand what's going on in this community and we can help them know that they are loved no matter what and they get to come and be the people that God created them to be. Be you for him. Be who you are for God's glory. And that's what, that's my Jericho. That's my Jericho. That's my prayer. That's what I'm circling. One of them. I circled other things too. Will you pray with me on that? Let's pray now. Father, you are an amazing God. And Lord, I lift to you this amazing church, this part of the body of believers known as Arbor Point Church at West Jackson. I lift this this opportunity of ministry lord we don't know how it's going to happen but lord you i believe you have the cattle on a thousand hills and that you sent those quail and that you can do anything that you decide to do so lord i pray that i pray that we would be able to do that to grow our children and our youth ministry and to be it so impactful for you in this community that lives will never be the same because you created the place to have us interact with others and that then you in the middle of that change hearts and lives and place for recovery and it's a place for healing and it's a place for the mighty and it's a place for those in our community to come and and feel the power and and experience the love of God in a way that that maybe other places aren't able to do because we just want to meet them where they are and be the ministers and and the folks of God that we're called to be. Pray with me for that. May the love of God the Father and the grace of God his Son and the power of God the Holy Spirit fill you, lift you, and lead you each day of this week, each day of your life. Be blessed as you go from this place and be a blessing in the lives of others. Amen.